This is Language Made Difficult, an indeclinable part of the SpecRam podcast. Welcome to our Linguistics Roundtable Telesymposium. I'm Trey Jones, and joining me today are the rest of the Ling Nerds, Keith Slater. Great to be with you. Sherry Wells-Jensen. Hi there. And Bill Sproul. Hey. Also joining us again on the program is Tim Pouliou. Welcome back, Tim. Thanks for visiting with us again. Thank you. I'm still waiting for my ride home to show up. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, from the last episode? (laughs) Oh, man, that's been weeks. We'll have to feed him next time we put food down for the interns. <laughs> All right, let's start off with some lies, damn lies, and linguistics. I've got three language-related items, two are true and one is false, and you guys have to figure out which is which. After you make your overly educated guesses, we will discuss. All right, our theme this time is hodgepodge, which means there is no theme, so good luck to you all. Item number one, researchers experimented on a mentally handicapped savant named Christopher, who was particularly good at languages. He already spoke over a dozen when they met him. They first taught him Berber, which was unlike any language he already knew, and he learned it well. Then they taught him a constructed language called Epun, which violated principles of universal grammar, and he could not learn it. Item number two, the idiom to eat one's words ultimately comes from the Sicils, the Iron Age inhabitants of Sicily. The Sicils had no writing before Greek colonists came to Sicily, and some Sicils believed that eating Greek words on paper would give them the ability to read. Item number three, the constitution of the island nation of Tuvalu makes explicit reference to number and gender of pronouns, stating that masculine includes feminine and vice versa, and that singular includes plural and vice versa. All right, who'd like to go first? Keith, since you were so sure last time that you were right, (laughs) you want to go first this time? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, certainly. I'll go first. Okay, so the savant named Christopher, who was good at learning languages, he could learn Berber, but he could not learn the constructed language that violated principles of universal grammar, correct? That is correct. So I believe you said that there were researchers involved. Is that right? (laughs) Yes. Okay, like, well then I, this I like is this. entirely interrogate likely. Interrogate him. Interrogate him. Put him I think the- this is this is entirely <laughs> likely because researchers could do anything and in this case they were clearly <laughs> testing a hypothesis about universal grammar and so they would have been predisposed to find the result that you reported. So I think this one is true. The idiom to eat one's words, I think this one's got to be the false one because I don't know why, but I'll go with uh, here's a justification. So you said that the Sicils believe that eating Greek words would give them the ability to read, and that's sort of the positive meaning of eating one's words, but now it means something negative, and that is an impossible semantic shift. Positive what? meaning words don't shift over to mean negative things. <laughs> so, so I'll say that must be the false one, but I do have the feeling I've been tricked. So the third one must be true, right? So let's see. The Constitution makes explicit reference to number and gender of pronouns. That's exactly what you'd expect of a legal document. So sure, that's true. (laughs) Okay. Who'd like to go next? I could go next because, as always, I'm in agreement with Keith. (laughs) It's happened so many times before. Life guide for, uh, well, practically since I was born. Uh, So. In this circumstance, I can certainly believe, yes, that uh, someone would find a savant who knew many languages and then give him a constructed language, which violated principles of universal grammar. I'd be interested to hear what principles it violated. For example, if it had the principle that a language should have words, maybe, (laughs) that would be a hard one to learn, or that words should not be more than, say, two hours long. (laughs) I don't know if that's a principle of Chomsky's universal grammar, but that would probably be a principle of my theory of universal grammar. (laughs) I can imagine that being violated and difficult to learn. The Tuvalu thing sounds like something that someone would do to make explicit reference to number and gender of pronouns. 
in legal documents in particular, the eat one words, Keith is right that that's not what eat one's words means, but even more, the CISELs, before I go on, uh, do you know how to pronounce that word? I've been reading it for years, but I've never heard it said aloud. Is that the correct pronunciation? I couldn't find anything, but I figured it was close to Sicily, so it couldn't be totally wrong. I sometimes say Sicels or Sicels or Sicels. I've never heard it said by Indo-European linguists. But what I do know is that we know next to nothing about the Sicel language other than their word for drink in the imperative. And so it seems extremely unlikely that we would get this in English from something that somehow made its way into Sicil and from there into, I don't know, Latin, Greek, etc. Even if uh, you read this somewhere, and therefore for the rules of the game, it counts as true, (laughs) I'm going to say that it's false anyway, and whatever you read was wrong about it. So I'll pick number two as false. We've tried that argument before, Tim, and it never works. It's not an argument, it's just uh, I recognize that I might be wrong by the rules of the game, and I'll happily accept my loss and the shame that goes with it. But it's <laughs> ahead of time that whatever source claimed this is almost certainly wrong if it's claimed to be true. Okay, so you got to tell us the one Sissel word for drink in the imperative. Pibet. Uh, it's interesting because it keeps the P unlike Latin, which has assimilated it to a B. Okay. So that's where the Russian word for beer comes from, apparently. Beer? What is the Russian yes. word for beer? Piva. Oh, yes. Yeah, I think it's from that root. Yeah, there you go. Okay, go ahead. There you go. Bill or Sherry, would either of you like to try uh, to get it right? I'll make a, <laughs> I'll make a go at it. Um. All right. The third one I have no trouble believing is true because not only is that what legal language would do, as Keith pointed out, it actually makes your job easier later because if you switch between pronouns, you can say, look, we've got a clause in there. Don't try to make a lawsuit out of it. The other two are both kind of unbelievable. The first one, I can certainly imagine people wanting to do a study with this savant, but You've got one person there teaching these languages. I would imagine the IRB paperwork for this would be monumental. Well, he didn't tell us where the research was carried out. It could have been North Korea. <laughs> they also did not specify if he was human or a lemur. Well, that's, that's, a, good, that's a good point. Also, I'm kind of curious. I would presume if it's a real study, they would be teaching the languages the same way. But if it's sort of like naturalistic social interaction in Berber versus... Here's some pre-prepared sentences read at you in Ipan. We might have some other sources for that. It would make more sense if it was the kind of study that was done 75 years ago. But they're talking about universal grammar. So I don't think it, you know, it's probably more recent. The second one sounds so ridiculous that I'm nervous it may be true. My logic here would be that all you need is somebody in the 17 or 1800s reading something about these people. And as far as the pronunciation of the word goes, anything involving Iron Age of Europe, the principle is you look at the word, you imagine Inigo Montoya saying it. <laughs> so, so these are obviously the Siqueles or something like that, right? <laughs> anyway, all it takes is some story being picked up in the 17 or 1800s 
by someone who show, wants to show off their knowledge of classical literature. And this can just arrive in English right there. I mean, it happened with a ton of other stuff because that poet over there already used all the good references out of the Iliad. So you got to find new ones. <laughs> I'm going to guess that one looks so bad. It's probably true. And therefore, I'll go with the first one being the false one. Okay. Sherry? Oh, wow. The the jump there at the end. I didn't think that's where you're going. Huh? Bill, I'm just going to wait. Way of confusing us. He does. He does. I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to start talking and just see what I say. Because <laughs> I had a plethora of hypotheses going here at the beginning. And I think I'm down to just get some inertia, run at it, and see what happens. So I believe the Tuvalu one, because I'm thinking if I were trying to write a constitution in someplace nice and sunny, I'd want it to take a really long time because presumably I would write this on the beach. And so I'd want to, you know, take my time and I'd want to cover things carefully and just just go back over it a couple times and see if there's anything we possibly, possibly had forgotten that we could put in before we have to go back to work. <laughs> so I like the Tuvalu one a lot. I think that's great. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that's true. Okay, so this eat your words thing. I can sort of see somebody doing something like this, that there was some kind of, you know, writing is kind of mystic. And if you tear up the parchment and stir it into the test tube. And didn't they do something like this in Harry Potter? Because if they did, then I'm totally with it. Because <laughs> I think that makes really good poetic sense. But whether it happened to those people in that way, I'm not sure. Okay, so the first one, I'm not sure that Berber doesn't violate universal grammar anyways. <laughs> you can't convince me that that's all fine. And I suspect that that is somebody with a bunch of zero affixes on verbs, you know, and just trying to make this point somehow or other. And so I think I'm going to say that the eat your words thing is false on a technicality, because I think it probably happened, but it probably happened to somebody else at some other time. I'm never that tricky. <laughs> okay, so let's see. We have a plethora of topics to cover here real quick. It's only three. Three is three a plethora? Well, no, there's other topics too. For example, I was going to say oh. on the pronunciation of Sicils, the way I figure it is, you know, if it's full of French people, it's Frenchy. If it's full of Sicils, it's Sicily. Makes sense to me. Goodness. You couldn't mm. say Sicilian or Sicilian. Unfortunately, I don't know how to pronounce that either, but... <laughs> It's another name for the same people. Okay. And an area full of French people is delicious. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, Tim, you said you've never heard an Indo-Europeanist say this word, but I want to know if you've ever heard an Indo-Europeanist say anything. I mean, are there such people? There are, yes. Does it count if he listens to himself talk? <laughs> I've heard people say things such as law and Schwebeablaut. Oh, there you go. Okay, I, I stand corrected. We had this a few weeks back. How do you say D-N-G-H-U? Dunku. Only I think it's actually Dunku. I think there should be an L in there. Do you know what we're referring to? It means tongue. <laughs> I don't know it's, what you're referring to, but it's it means the tongue. people who are planning to re... Oh, I uh, have seen that, yes. You know, modern Indo-European, and that's the name of their website. Yes, they should get jobs or girlfriends or something. <laughs> <laughs> that was very succinct, but that was basically the conclusion we came to as well. Learn <laughs> to use the dative. <laughs> the last two minutes has been terrifying to me in just any number of ways. <laughs> okay, so item number three. Oh, no, don't tell us the answer. It's always depressing. 
Well, I don't think anybody fell for that one. So item number three is in fact true with the constitution of Tuvalu. It does make explicit reference to number and gender of pronouns. Item number two about the sizzles and eating one's words is in fact the one I made up. Oh, oh. I got one. Hey. Everybody but Bill got it. Eh. <laughs> and I just wanted to say that I do think that it wouldn't come from the sizzles. It would come from the Greeks going, look at those crazy people. Or the scenario that Bill laid out would also work well. And just to give the correct facts, to eat one's words seem to have first appeared in print in 1571 in a religious tract by John Calvin. Well, I was being egregious. <laughs> was Calvin from Sicily? I don't understand. <laughs> no, I just made that up. I'm just telling you where it actually did come from. You know, it would be clearer for us, Trey, if you would say things like, when I made this one up, <laughs> I invented this eat one's words thing, and then we would know what to do a lot better. Mm. Yeah, that would narrow down. Well, there's too many choices. There's a plethora I mean, still, of choices. We, we need to yeah. narrow down to just one. We still might get it wrong, but if you actually included <laughs> the phrase, when I made this one up, some of us would do better. Okay. I would do worse. We need to narrow it down to a monothera. <laughs> well, see, the thing is with that is because you guys always accuse me of being tricky, I would almost certainly say when I made this one up on the one I didn't make up. Yeah, we can imagine that happening. Sorry, before we leave, what year did you say? For eat one's words? Yes. 1571. 1571. So it occurred in French or it occurred in a translation from French and English, if it's John Calvin. I didn't know there'd be a quiz. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I'm the one asking the questions here. <laughs> oh, no, it I'm was just... predestined. <laughs> <laughs> or it's uh, it's uh, uh, total depravity. That's it. It's completely depraved. Okay. <laughs> Item number one. That one was true. It's from 1993. Article called Learning the Impossible by Smith, Simply, and Uhala. I looked it up real quick since you guys were asking, and the features of EPUN that purported to violate universal grammar included negative sentences with no overt negative morpheme, <laughs> past tense sentences which involved unattested and putatively impossible word order differences that had a rule of emphasis that involved counting words and a form of agreement that violated putatively universal generalizations. That's not That's violating Eugene great. in any interesting way. It's just it's, weird. It's not violating Eugene in any interesting way. That's right. No, it's just weird. Well, they still did it and they got it published. Let's talk about that article sometime. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready. Bring it on. <laughs> they got it published where? Oh, never mind. Yeah, because that might be good information for me to have. You know? Yeah, right. Because <laughs> I want to write to that publisher. <laughs> it was in Lingua. Really? Yep. Okay. Well, you have to keep in mind that universal grammar has now been expanded to refer to any general cognitive constraints, too. Well, then if someone argues against that and says, but wait a minute, that's a general cognitive constraint, not universal grammar, what you get is, well, by grammar, what we mean is cognition. <laughs> that's one version. Another version is that universal grammar means recursion. Mm. It's recursion in terms of being able to repeat the operation, not expanding with a copy of yourself. You should not do things with copies of yourself in general. Yeah. Or I, I wasn't phrasing. There's the recursion where there's the same symbol on both sides of the arrow. And there's the recursion that says, now that you've written a rule, you can write another one. And they're different recursions. If this fellow Christopher is still alive, they should try to teach him Piraha. <laughs> exactly. That is an excellent, excellent test of several things.
<laughs> Let's take a look at the scores. The good news for Sherry yes. is that she got it right. And so she's moved up and we're now tied at 56%. Bill uh, has now fallen and the guests have risen and are tied at 50%. And Keith is moving slightly away from chance <laughs> at 39%. Good job. Hey, but at least I moved above chance, not below chance. I don't know if you're statistically significantly different than chance, but you're getting there. Good job. Well, if you ask my children, you'll get one answer. <laughs> I guess that's all the time we have for Lies, Damn Lies, and Linguistics. We'll be back after a word from our sponsor to talk about some linguistic news. Language Made Difficult is brought to you by the Speculative Grammarian Essential Guide to Linguistics. Specgram's Essential Guide to Linguistics is still speculative, still grammatical, still essential, and still about linguistics. But now it's also available as a PDF for your favorite tablet or e-reader. Whether in physical or electronic form, the guide is jam-packed with humor and wit, both scholarly and unrefined. From the phonetic to the phonemic, from the morphological to the mordant, from the syntactic to the scatological, Specgram and the Essential Guide to Linguistics have something for everyone. Estimates of humor content are based on the typical experience of five to seven years grinding away in grad school, only to leave disappointed, disgruntled, disaffected, and without a degree. Your mileage and or humor content may vary. Content packaged by wit, not volume, some settling may occur during shipping. Welcome back to Language Made Difficult. Joining us for this discussion, uh, linguistic news, is Tim Pouliou. Thanks for joining us, Tim. Thank you. I was told there would be donuts. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> are there donuts? I'm so excited. <laughs> there, there are no donuts. No donuts. Oh. Where are the, give me the donuts. Look what you started, Tim. <laughs> this is why we can't have nice things. <laughs> <laughs> we're, now we're going to turn our attention to Bill a, ate the donuts again. No, I didn't. We got rid of the donuts because the interns kept breaking into the office to get them instead of eating their porridge like they're supposed to. So we just had to lock them up. I put the porridge down for the interns last night. I thought they were pretty happy. Uh, you haven't checked behind the sofa, have you? No. We are now going to turn our attention to a semi-recent article discussing the automatic reconstruction of proto-languages from forms in the descendant languages. Or we could discuss the invasion of historical linguistics by statisticians, or both. Let's do both. So, Alexandre Bouchard-Coté, a professor of statistics, is lead and or alphabetically first author on the paper, which describes a complex algorithm to take a large list of cognates and related languages, along with a language family tree, and generate likely ancestral forms of their common proto-language. I have to say that the statisticians are doing significantly better than the physicists when it comes to invading historical linguistics. Bouchard-Coté and his colleagues report 85% accuracy in their reconstruction of Proto-Austronesian. And on the one hand, they had a reasonable metric, which was at a distance between their forms and the baseline. And they had a good baseline, which were manual reconstructions by actual linguists. On the other hand, they had 142,000 words from 637 languages to work with. And while they did claim that having more data didn't make the problem easier, I don't really believe them. So, Tim, what do you think? I think I agree with you. Or more, I look at it and say, well, that's nice, but I'm not sure what good it's going to do us. And I'm not sure what the point of it is. <laughs> so you can plug in things and get some results out, but you still need to go through by hand afterwards and assess each of your results and see what you think is right or wrong and figure out arguments for it. Or maybe it's nice for a first pass if you're doing something like working on some languages that haven't been done very much. But if you're doing something like Indo-European, it's not going to help you much. It's not going to establish whether this root has a laryngeal in it or not. <laughs> 
I was thinking the same thing, that it could be helpful as a first pass at reconstructions that would then be validated by humans. And I would think that also possibly the algorithm could be modified so that if you reviewed some of the results and said, oh, yeah, this one's definitely right. This one definitely looks right. Oh, this one's wrong. I think that, you know, this is probably a better answer. That that could actually be folded back into the algorithm and it could take account of the human judgments on those things. And you could say, you know, so this is right. This is wrong. Now rerun with that information. And, you know, it could get better. I I was kind of doubtful that you could use it for a first pass Hmm. because... It looked to me like one of the things that they needed in order to build their algorithm was a family tree. They needed somebody to hypothesize the distance of the languages from each other in the family tree. And you can't do that without doing a first pass already at reconstruction. Well, I don't know. What percentage of forms do you have to reconstruct to come to the conclusion that Spanish is more closely related to Portuguese than it is to French, you know, and then figure out where to stick Italian in there? You know what I mean? Zero percent. For Spanish and Portuguese, you don't need to reconstruct anything. You look at them and say, yeah, those are more closely related than they are to French. That's what came to mind. Yeah, actually, specifically with Spanish and Portuguese, it's pretty obvious they're more closely related than French. Well, right. I mean, that'll work if you have six languages like that. But if you have, you know, go out and get data on the remaining 300 Sino-Tibetan languages that nobody's worked on yet, you're not going to get a very elaborate family tree just by inspection, I don't think. Here's the question, because I have not actually looked at the algorithm, but um, how robust do you think it is? with language situations where a tree model doesn't really work well, where the languages stayed in contact over large amounts of time. Yeah, it's not going to work for that. They definitely have an explicit tree model, and they have a huge number of parameters, which is actually very cool that they have distinct weights and parameters for each segment of the tree. Do you think that the degree to which the algorithm fails... Could that provide any information on how non-tree-like the situation is? They did talk about the distribution of errors that they had, but it was more on the type of errors and not the geographical distribution, like, I mean, within the tree. Because it would be interesting if, like, all of your errors were concentrated in one section of the tree. That would tell you something weird is happening over there. Of course, you wouldn't know they were errors unless you had the human-generated reconstructions to compare against. So I suppose, again, if you had a sample of three or four percent of things that have been reconstructed, and then you said, okay, compared to that sample, we still are getting a ton of errors Mm -hmm. over in this little subtree, then something weird must be going on there. (laughs) One thing I noticed was that the article was clearly intended to appeal to linguists and historical linguists, because while there's plenty of math, they use more Greek letters than any other mathy article (laughs) I've ever read. They had delta, zeta, theta, kappa, lambda, mu, nu, psi, pi, sigma, tau, and omega. Wow, they almost ran out. (laughs) Yeah. They could have used more because they used P and T and L as well. (laughs) One thing I would have liked to have seen is if they had more variations on the theme of, of the reconstructions they were doing, you know, looking at varying the number of languages they use to see if they get better or worse results. Also, the time depth, you know, maybe if they had a subtree and they only, you know, would they get better than 85% if they just focused on one subtree at a time, you know, and, and a different time depth there. And then also, of course, it'd be cool to see them try it on better tested things like you know, the Romance languages, where we actually have a better idea of what the ancestral forms really are. Because mm-hmm. it's possible that the algorithm could be making the same categorical mistakes that the historical linguists are making in the reconstruction. So it it becomes a very accurate model of the behavior of historical linguists. Right, exactly. That's what you could could end up with. Yeah. I think you test that by seeing if the algorithm preferentially depletes the buffet. 
<laughs> early because that would be a, a linguist emulating behavior. Or if it struggles more with languages spoken in really nice, sunny parts of the world so that you have to go there and check it out and correct your data. <laughs> Many historical linguists don't go anywhere to collect data and just get it out of books that hardworking field linguists have collected for us. Preferably dead hardworking field linguists who collected it 100 years ago. Is that correct? Yes, that also helps. Or even better, dead languages like Latin and Greek that are so well studied that no one has to go and find new data, which you couldn't anyway, since they're dead. Do you think historical linguists, are their performances enhanced or impeded by the presence of dust? (laughs) (laughs) If it's Sino-Tibetan or Indo-European, the more dust, the better. If it's a a fairly young family, then uh, maybe, maybe not so much dust. I guess that's all we have to say about that. I know Tim's got to run. Tim, thanks for being with us. Well, thank you for having me. I still wish we had donuts, but I'll try to find a Dunkin' Donuts on the way home. Once your ride arrives. <laughs> so we'll be back after a word from our sponsor to discuss some proposed new linguistic holidays. Language Made Difficult is brought to you by the Linguists Political Activism Fund. The Linguists Political Activism Fund is a recognized charity in the U.S., the U.K., and other U-initial democracies. The fund aims to influence major world events by investing the donations of ordinary linguists like yourself in the political campaigns of politicians on all ends of the political spectrum. Put the impressiveness of your advanced degree to work in an area completely unrelated to your expertise. Donate today to help the Linguists Political Activism Fund. Welcome back to Language Made Difficult. I think that one of the things we can all pretty much agree on is that everyone is more stressed than they wish they were and could really use more time sitting around a fire or sitting on a beach. And really, included with that, we could all really use a day off of whatever it is we do that we call work, even if we are linguists. And I think that when one is structuring one's time off, if one wishes to get any kind of per diem or payment from one's job to attend the festivities as part of, say, your professional growth, it might be worthwhile if the holidays that you attended or the days that you took off work to go wherever you're going to go are linguistically oriented in some kind of way. So I propose that we need more linguistic holidays. This is not a new idea. There are linguistics holidays or or language-related holidays all over the place. My favorite of the already existing category is Hangul Day, which, as you probably know, is celebrated in Korea. And my very reliable sources say that it's either October 9th or January 15th, depending on... (laughs) Depending on how you spell it or what? (laughs) Well, actually... North Korea versus South Korea? Yes, it is. It is North Korea versus South Korea. This is, this is a holiday that celebrates the Korean writing system, which is a great writing system. So why not celebrate? I mean, you could just go from there and give every writing system a holiday, which would be fair, but not super interesting. So we should get different holidays than just one for each writing system. And my same reliable source, by the way, says that Hangul Day was not an official day off work for a while. And just in 2013, once again, the good people of Korea get a day off for Hangul Day, which makes me kind of want to move there because one more day off is good, right? (laughs) So I propose that we invent for ourselves in hopes that they'll catch on 
a series of linguistic holidays. And I might start you off with an example. Let's see. I'll start you off with one of my own, which I think is really necessary for me as a some person that teaches linguistics. So because of the law of conservation of calendrical events, we want to just repurpose some days that are already on the book. So it doesn't really gain us a new holiday, but it gives us a reason to take the day off. So I propose that we repurpose, for starters, Arbor Day, <laughs> because who needs Arbor Day as a day for the syntactic trees instead of those other ones? Ah. See, so this is in the last Friday of April when we do Arbor Day. But because we're talking about syntactic trees, we can't have syntactic trees day as, I don't know, what would it be according to the astrological signs of Taurus or something like that? It needs to be a Gemini because of all the binary splits, right? Mm. So we need to move it. So we're going to move it to the last Friday in May, which I think is a good idea because it makes your Memorial Day longer. Okay, so now comes the important part. How do you observe syntactic trees day? And I think this is a good place to start because you don't need to do anything in particular to celebrate syntactic trees day. And you can in fact do anything you want to celebrate syntactic trees day because that's all just performance anyway. So it doesn't matter. <laughs> good plan. Good plan. Yeah, I think it's a really good plan. And I'm going to begin to take syntactic trees day off to make my Memorial Day weekend longer. Excellent. What other days can I have off, fellow Ling nerds? What do you have? I'd like to jump in particularly because your Syntactic Trees Day is in May. So there's a really well-known article called Dates in the Month of May that are of interest to linguists mm. by James D. McCauley, mm. which was originally in Lingua Pranca in 1978. And two of the important holidays there are May 13th is Vowel Day, a holiday in the Kabardian Autonomous Region, where the ceremonial vowel is pronounced by all Kabardians as a symbol of brotherhood with all speakers of human languages. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. It is. It, it's truly selfless. <laughs> and May 19th is Diphthong Day in Australia. So we should definitely celebrate those. Yay, yes. <laughs> those are okay. important ones that are already on the calendar. That's right. Mm -hmm. So it seems like May is a good month to be a linguist. Yeah, there are a plethora really of does. reasons why May is a good month to be a linguist. Uh, it really Other is. ones? Well, I have a couple that I think would be a pair of holidays that we should celebrate. I can't propose a date for one of them, but I think that uh, for English speakers, we should have Germanic Day and Romance Day. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and Romance Day, uh, that needs to be on October 14th because that was the date of the Battle of Hastings in which the Anglo-Saxon king was ignominiously defeated by the Norman conquest, William II of Normandy. And so that's the, what we owe all of our romance borrowings to, more or less. But what day we celebrate Germanic Day, I don't know. I guess we could do it on October 13th, the day before, because we have a Germanic base in English. Then the way we'll celebrate these is on Germanic Day, we will, just for example, we will kill and eat cows. But the next day on Romance Day, we will execute and consume beef. <laughs> and on Germanic Day, we will speak words, while on Romance Day, we will pronounce vocabulary. <laughs> and then in the evening of Germanic Day, we will light fireworks. But on Romance Day, we will ignite flammable devices. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm ready. And let's I'm signed up for those. <laughs> those <are really laughs> I good. think those will be lots of fun. <laughs> Related to Specgram and satirical linguistics, I'm fond of Rasmusmus, the arguably grammatical feast of Rasmus Rask, who is of course the patron saint of Specgram and satirical linguistics, and it should be celebrated on his birthday, which is the 22nd of November. I've also heard that uh, it has been called Raskmus by certain heathen heretics. <laughs> 
which would be Bill. <laughs> because that's its name. When I was growing up and we were celebrating the holiday the way it's supposed to be celebrated, <laughs> with the prune danishes and the oatmeal cakes, that's what it was called. <laughs> So speaking of figures in satirical and otherwise linguistics, I also propose that we celebrate Jeff Pullum Day, mm. which must mm. be celebrated on the very first snow or sleet or hail or frost or whiteout or nor'easter <laughs> or blizzard or occurrence of any kind of atmospheric water vapor frozen that falls into little ice crystals and pretty white flakes in your particular area. Ah, interesting. <laughs> and we are going to observe this day by failing to look up original sources and acknowledging that the truth doesn't stand a snowball's chance. <laughs> Excellent. I'm ready for that one. On the topic, of, again, of days to celebrate uh, particular figures in linguistics, I don't really support the calls I've heard for a Noam Chomsky day, but I'm willing to compromise and put my support behind any proposal if we can arrange for it to be on February 30th. <laughs> I think that's fair. Mm, yeah. For Noam Chomsky Day, yeah. Yeah. Mm. That's fair. So I will I will celebrate it the next February thirtieth. <laughs> I will celebrate Noam Chomsky the next time February thirtieth rolls around. I figure with these things that the goal is to try to approach something more like the medieval calendar with all of its rotating feast days and that kind of thing, because that that makes almost every day interesting. So I figure we need some days for grammatical forms. So mm. imperative verb form day has to be sometime in March because it is one. Yes. Right? <laughs> so I figure, it. you know, probably March 1st would work well. So that would be imperative verb form day where you walk around happily saying imperative verb forms to other people. Uh, and they can include objects with them, too. I mean, there's no problem with that. Imperative Day has to be March 1st because March 1st is also an imperative. That is a good point. So you need exactly. to walk around for a little while and then start doing the imperatives. So March right. 1st right. and then do something. And then do the rest of the imperatives, yes. Yeah. Right. Auxiliary Day is in May for the same reason. Oh, I was going to suggest a modal day in May, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The thing about Auxiliary Day is you cannot state with any firmness what people should do on that day. <laughs> but, I mean, we can all entertain hypotheses about it. But those people who see it more as modal day, of course, it's going to remain hypothetical. For other kind of sects of celebration of Auxiliary Day, you might have some people that are want it to be absolutely perfect. And some people <laughs> wanting it to go on for a while and change over time and be more progressive. But we can all sort of celebrate Auxiliary Day in the way we want to. World Attributive Modifier Day will, of course, be in August. It has to be a grand celebration and a very well-respected one. So that should be fairly easy, actually. I was getting ahead of myself with Adverb Day, which, of course, would be in also in early November because basically there's not much else then. <laughs> I think Adverb Day goes in July because it's... it's I thought uh, so too, yeah. Oh, I think so, yeah. It's a Julie, right? I was going to say that Julie. might be Adverbial Folk Etymology Day. There you go, Adverbial Folk <laughs> Etymology. Well, we certainly do need a Folk Etymology Day. Mm. 
And it might as well be in Julie. <laughs> I think that could only be a linguist's mm. folk etymology. So that should be <laughs> Professional Linguist Folk Etymology Day. Or Morphemic Analysis Day. <laughs> that is quite an excellent set you have there. And nicely yeah. spread throughout the year as well. Are there more, Bill? Well, there can be. The thing is, I was actually going to bring up Particle Day, but I was kind of worried about it because it's been abused in the past. People keep putting it all over the calendar. (laughs) Yeah, no one would be sure when it was. But that's perfect. Well, yeah, but it conflicts with National Agnostic Day, which everyone also (laughs) is unsure of the time off. (laughs) We're sure they have one. I mean... Well, I'm getting it mixed up with National Deistic Agnostic Day, where everyone's (laughs) sure the holiday exists, but not when it is. (laughs) I think for Particle Day, it should be one of those things where, you know, you're looking at your calendar and going, you know what? I really need a day off here, 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 and here. Those are the Particle Days. (laughs) And I think they would move from month to month, right? Of course, obviously. And year to year, yeah. It's like a snow day, but without this, you know, it's like, well, it was a Particle Day, so the kid was home. All right, I have another series of related holidays. There's Moody Gras, which is when linguists must give in to the party imperative, which is followed by Esh Wednesday, mm. the first day of remission, <laughs> during which linguistics atone by doing phonology problems for 40 days. And this all culminates in Easterisk, which celebrates the resurrection of proto-languages from the dead. <laughs> <laughs> you spent time working on that, didn't you? <laughs> A little bit. <laughs> Can the day before Easterus be Wackernagel Eve? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Just because something has to, to be Wackernagel <laughs> Eve. <laughs> that would work. Absolutely. So I also have a set of related holidays. They're sort of related Boxing Day-esque holidays, because I think there should be a series of days when you celebrate by adopting the linguistic characteristic that you want in your own language. So, Mm. And you, of course, can tell which sect a person is in by what they call this day. So if you are of the people who really wish that English had clicks, you don't celebrate Boxing Day, you celebrate Boxing Day. (laughs) If you want implosives, you can celebrate Boxing Day. And all I have to say about ergativity is you're absolutely welcome to celebrate that if you really, really want to. (laughs) I'm not sure that I would. And if you want evidentials, you are allowed to celebrate those, but I want you to remember where you heard about that first. Which would be right here on Language Made Difficult. (laughs) That's right. That's right. And if you want to celebrate Grice for any reason, you sort of want to go out that. I just want you to remember that flautists go better with cheese. (laughs) (laughs) I'm personally planning to celebrate all of those in one grand Boxing Day festival. You better be careful with all those interesting pronunciations there that you have snacks that are not choking hazards. That's true. (laughs) But, you know, some of these things maybe you shouldn't try at home. I would hate to be responsible. Yeah, that's what happened with laryngeal day. (laughs) (laughs) That took out like a whole conference of Indo-Europeanists in one fell swoop. (laughs) It was the H2s that did it. Well, they shouldn't have tried to celebrate that right after Gaul Stop Day. <laughs> oh, yeah, they'd be sore and tired. I don't think you've totally exhausted the Boxing Day possibilities yet. So we could celebrate Metathesis on Bosking Day. <laughs> 
And uh, what else? There must be dusking, more. Dusking, dusking Bay, right? Is that what you said? That, yes. Uh, Spoonerisms on, dos- on dusking, dox- bay. Doxing, dusking Bay. Doxing Bay. Yeah. We dox- could have Boxing Day for Auslautverhärtung. <laughs> yeah, I think we could just go on and on. Did you do Breathy Consonant Day on Boxing Day? Boxing Day. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I mean, if, if you do that, you've got to move that away from Stop Day and Laryngeal Day because that could cause injury. <laughs> right. And you also have to be a little careful, though, because that sort of sounded like you were celebrating, oh, I'm having a stroke day. <laughs> 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 then there's Bozing Day for Lenition. Hmm. I think we should have a whole festival of Lenition and just go, ah. <laughs> <laughs> That's frequently the late hours of any festival day. <laughs> I was going to say, that's that's Mardi Gras at 3 a.m., yeah. There is no reason that you can't have two of these holidays on the same day, though. I, I kind of want to spread them out. Yeah, that's the point. You don't have two on the same day. What's the point, then? <laughs> you can't stay at home twice in the same day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you can do the on iteration day, maybe, or on redundancy? Gemination day. day. Uh, Gemination day. That's what stay home twice the same day. <laughs> <laughs> or portmanteau day, one or the other. <laughs> or emphatic day. I'm really staying home today. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I've got one more, which I think this is not a cause that everyone's going to take up, but it's important to me. And I found Morpheme Independence Day. <laughs> <laughs> and what day, pray tell, would that be on? Oh, you know, I didn't get that far. I didn't think anybody would support it, but you know, <laughs> it's important to me. Ishmus. <laughs> I also have one more that, again, I'm not sure that people would support, but maybe the bound morphemes might want to take up this particular one. I think that we should celebrate Benjamin Lee Wharf Day, and I think we could just put that on his birthday, April 24th. That's fine, whenever. But I think you should celebrate this on any, maybe any day when you've just had an emphatic day. And I think you should celebrate it by tossing lighted matches into various containers just to see what will happen. I really support that one a lot. I'm really ready to go right out and do that one. I think that'd be fun. You know what I've realized is that this entire list of holidays <laughs> could function as an involuntary test of people's linguistic knowledge and seeing which ones they find humorous. Mm, yeah. <laughs> oh, because then you could start with the self-defining phonological process. You could have like a pocket be di- <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> That's where this is all leading. Everything goes back to that, right? Yeah. But I kind of want to know how the test works, though, because it could work to indicate you have enough background knowledge to get it, or it could work by indicating you're the type of person who will think that's funny and therefore should be a linguist. (laughs) Yeah. I think it would be a good interview question, right? Because you both get a sense of the person's sense of humor and their knowledge. So if they don't chuckle at anything, either they don't know anything or they're a complete stick in the mud and you didn't want to work with them anyway. Yeah. So you ask them, do you celebrate assimilation day <laughs> on an annual or a biannual basis or a semi-annual basis? Hexiannual. Hexiannual. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out what a sesqua biannual holiday is. <laughs> I couldn't remember if that was this podcast or the one before, so I wasn't sure if I should try going for that word. Sesquibiannual. Yeah, I like that. That would be once a year, wouldn't it? It should be three years. <laughs> Sesquibiannual should be three years. Well, right. One and a half of two. So. One and a half of two. Yep. Yeah, it would be a Hemi biannual if it was three years. Yeah. 
the sesquibiannual would be every three years, but only for smart people. <laughs> I just like the idea of saying, we don't have an annual conference. We have a hemi-biennial conference. <laughs> well, that's what yeah. some of these holidays should be, hemi-biannual. The, the hemi-biannual <laughs> conference of obsessive-compulsive morphologists or something like that. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Are we done? I think we've I got the have... calendar filled. Yep. Yeah. I mean, we didn't even include Talk Like a Pirate Day, which is actually my favorite one. <laughs> and that's I, a real one. It's a real one. I celebrate it every year. It falls on my birthday. So I've oh, always celebrated Well, maybe you could close this segment out by just talking like a pirate. I have the hat and everything. You, you can't <laughs> just do it on any day. You have to wait. Jeez. Oh. You have to wait and preserve it so it has meaning and preserve the ritual by doing <laughs> let it. Me, let me try. Day. Okay. Ahoy there. That's that? that's yeah, that's okay now. <laughs> you can't just go willy-nilly talking like a pirate whenever one one mustn't. <laughs> Except on modal day. <laughs> <laughs> you know, on modal day one may do anything one can do. One might could do that. One might could, yeah. Hey. <laughs> don't go appropriating my native dialect. I speak that way too. Mike could is I learned Mike could in grad school in Southern Illinois. Maybe it doesn't right. count if you're studying it. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. I was living it. I was living the dream down there, and they'd say, "Y'all, you want to go out and you want to go out and pick a few tunes on the banjo or the ukulele?" Yeah, Mike could. And they said tunes. Yeah, yeah. They didn't say tunes. <laughs> <laughs> They're not real if they say tunes. They're not real what? Well, they were in southern Illinois. Well, that's true. It snows there. It does snow there every once in a while. And people yeah. don't even run out and point at it. <laughs> that's not they the do, south. They do go a little bit crazy when it snows, though. Everything stops. It's really kind of wonderful. All right. I believe we have drifted off topic a little bit. Mm. So I'm going to wrap this up. So that's all the time we have for Language Made Difficult. Join us next time when we'll talk to a linguistic gardener and learn whether deverbatives can ever really be homorganic. Wow. That was beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> Who comes up with this nonsense? <laughs> when there's two outtakes in a row. <laughs> well, if you want to come up with some nonsense, feel free. <laughs> uh, outtakes. We've got fruitcake, I think. Somebody <laughs> brought it about 20 years ago. That's not a nice way to refer to Trey. <laughs> I was going to say that fruitcake is technically against the Geneva Convention, but yours was almost funny, too. <laughs> the scary thing is that Indo-European word that he said mm -hmm. sounded absolutely word-like, but I know if I try to say it, I will sprain something. <laughs> and having listened to your voice more closely than probably you ever have <laughs> editing the <laughs> podcasts i can tell you all what your verbal tics are <laughs> <laughs> no um, no i won't but i could <laughs> they're gonna find you someday trey <laughs> <laughs> my stated philosophy which i don't always adhere to is never comment your code if it was hard to write it should be hard to read <laughs> <laughs> My very best perky predoc voice because aliens. <laughs> Debased. No, what's the term? Never mind. Moving on. Delete that. Total depravity. That's it. It's completely depraved. Go on. Okay. <laughs> 
We'll be back after a word from our sponsor to discuss some language news. Wait, but you didn't give us the stats, and I went up one. Oh, I'm sorry. I went up one. Okay. Also, it said that's all the time we have for language made difficult, not for lies to and lies and linguistics. Well, so I totally used it. Okay. Yeah, you can post that. I did actually think about how to try to explain the the algorithm that they use. The ex, they use the expectation maximization algorithm. I already explained well. If you could explain that. it in French, that would be okay. I actually already explained that when I dropped out there for a minute. You didn't. You didn't hear okay. it. Okay. <laughs> oh. Okay. <laughs> because aliens. <laughs>